Greetings, listeners. Uh, the few, the proud. I only have one listen to my last one. Here I am doing another one. But hopefully I'll find some repurposing of this content. But anyway, welcome to Nugent Ventures. Now, it's only been out there for a day, and I do find that people uh, tend to listen over time. So hopefully, you know, it's like if a podcast is done in the forest and nobody hears it. But anyway, I know I've got one loyal listener out there, so this one's for you. And hopefully a few of your friends. I don't know. Um, So... Today is the Chicago Tribune. Now, the Chicago Tribune is actually being sold to an outfit called Alden, which is notorious for kind of stripping down newspapers. And the Trib is about as stripped down as you can get. But I still find, I read it it very carefully today, too carefully. In fact, I spent most of the day on and off reading it, which is not good, because I don't make any money from reading the Tribune. But... What can I tell you? We come from a family of newspaper readers, and I am a journalism major. Although I sold out early and didn't even get a good price. But anyway, be that as it may, uh, we'll get to it in a minute. But first, I have to go through the exercise of turning off my, or putting my phone on. Do not disturb, because I am expecting a phone call here. I've actually found that do not disturb does not always work. I don't know why, because I'm a boomer. So anyway. Okay, we're two minutes in and we've accomplished nothing. But we're about to get going here. And uh, in the business section, and I'll start with that, hopefully... And Biden is really working hard to get people into electronic vehicles, here and after referred to as EVs. The percentage of cars on the road, there are 279 million vehicles on the road. The percentage that are fully electric is 0.36%. Now, new vehicles, 14.5 million sold last year, 2%. So, depending on how you look at it, 98 to over 99% of cars have to be converted over to EVs. It would take 15 years to do that, even if every new vehicle sold was electric. And cars now are lasting up to 12 years. You know, so this is virtually an impossible mission. But uh, they quote some, a retired uh, University of Michigan transportation researcher says, if you don't start somewhere, you're never going to get anywhere, which I suppose is hard to argue with. Every electric vehicle is a net positive, but that's not exactly true either because it could take a couple of years if coal uh, is used to recharge the vehicle. So there's still coal-powered plants. So, you know, I think this is more virtue signaling than anything else. But uh, now Biden wants to build half a million charging stations, 
which would help. One of the reasons people don't buy these things is they're afraid they'll run out of juice. You know, I mean, if your phone dies, that's one thing. If your car dies in the middle of the Mojave Desert, that's another thing. Uh, I mean, I would buy one because I figured it out. If you can keep the thing 15 years, it pays for itself. If you can charge for free, uh, which Tesla was offering for a while. And I don't go very far, you know, so... I mean, 99% of my trips are within 10 miles, so I'm sure I could manage. Let's see. $174 billion over eight years on EVs. Uh, It's a big job, and it's going to be very expensive for the government. Let's see. I'll skip over some of the details here, I think. Now, the next article, which is in the rides section, which used to be the auto section before the trib started to get hip. You know, it points out that uh, GM... Ford and Volkswagen are spending $77 billion on EVs. And they're planning to be out of the combustion engine business by 2040. I mean, or no, even sooner, I think. 2030, maybe. So if nobody buys the cars, then they'll have to discount them. And worldwide... Only 3% of cars are electric at this point. They've taken off in Europe and China because of much further-reaching pollution regulations and government incentives. So if the government makes you take one, then you'll take one. I mean, if they go outright and ban combustion engines, that's when things get interesting, at least on a go-forward base. Make it illegal to sell new ones, at least. I could see that happening. Uh, now, in the EU, they've got incentives that make the cost basically equal, and they sold 730000 um in Europe in 2020, 300000 in the final three months of the year. So, which is probably the deadline for tax time, right? Uh, let's see. So now they've got the share up to 10.5%, and you can bet your bottom dollar, Bitcoin, that the Biden folks are looking straight over the Atlantic to that. Uh, so I think that's going to be a big, big, big number. They'll probably use the funny money to incent people for fear of losing votes. But, you know, one way or another, they're going to get it done. Trust me. So, yeah, let's see what else we've got in business. There's an article about the Roaring Twenties. And, of course, the Roaring Twenties in the night. The twentieth century were very exciting, and we do have the kind of gangbanging and 
shooting in town that's reminiscent of that. This time it's for drug prohibition versus alcohol prohibition. But um, this article points out that a lot of people actually got their net worth went up. There's $2 trillion in extra savings that have happened here. The personal savings rate is above 12 has been above 12% since last March and it hit 20.5 in January up from 7.6 in t- January 2020 there's such a reservoir of money available to be spent i've never seen anything like it says and jim glassman who heads up at He's the head economist for J.P. Morgan Chase, so he's Jamie Dimon's economist. And J.P. Morgan ought to know, you know, they know how much money everybody has, or at least everybody that banks there. The Big Lots uh, CEO, Bruce Tom, says that he's worried, even though there's this big uh, reservoir of dollars, that people will shift to, quote, experiences, unquote, meaning they'll go on cruises or vacations, Disney World, what have you, because uh, they have more options, including all those, once we get past this pandemic. Consumers are still primarily making essential purchases, but they will likely prioritize experiences that offer a sense of community, said Diana Smith, echoing Mr. Thom, or Tom, or whatever, T-H-O-M, Says Diana Smith, Associate Director for U.S. Retail at the research firm Mintel. And many people are still worried about exposure to the virus or facing financial hardship despite all that savings. Signs of optimism, but things aren't going to jump back overnight, says as this Diana Smith says. Okay. Fewer than half of U.S. consumers feel safe going to a restaurant, staying in a hotel, attending in-person events, or flying, according to a Deloitte survey the weekend of March 3rd. And that kind of includes me, even though I'm fully vaxxed. So about 45% of people who've been vaccinated feel safe flying, compared with 35% who haven't been vaccinated. So uh, the vaccinated people are feeling more bold than those who haven't. Rightly so. But it's only a 10% margin, 10-point spread. According to Mintel, 53% of Americans say they don't have much money left by the time they take care of the basics, and they're better off than I am, considering my income expense ratio. Illinois unemployment in February was 7.4%. It was only 36 the year before, same month. And 29% of renters have zero or slight confidence they'll be able to make the next month's payment. 31% of Illinoisans say it had been difficult to pay for household expenses. About 40% said they didn't have any trouble. As of Thursday, more than 130 million payments worth about $325 billion have been sent to taxpayers. And... Clearly, a lot of them don't need it. That's the rub here. Um, how you figure out who does quote-unquote need it, I don't know. But I'm sure a lot of people are getting this and they have no real need for it at all. But happy days are here again, right? 
In a survey of people who received the first stimulus, the twelve hundred bucks, twenty four hundred for a married couple. Thank you very much. Fifteen percent said they spent most or all of it. Only fifteen percent. We emphasize, and this is a according to Michael Weber, who's an assistant prof of finance at University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. People spent on average about forty percent. And the rest of it, they either saved or paid down debt, which is kind of the same thing. Better, though, if they pay down debt for them and avoid those interest payments. Some may have chosen to save due to uncertainty about the course of the pandemic. Others may have been unable to spend it on what they usually spend it on, which is probably gambling and boozing. No, I'm kidding. Um... Tourists and business travelers who come back to the city or not uh, are going to be a big Chicago area issue. PNC Financial Services Group Senior Economist Bill Adams says, the recovery is really going to gain traction once we have the combination of consumer spending power and the pandemic receding. The two will be much more powerful in driving the recovery than money in consumers' pockets on its own. So in other words, this whole stimulus is ridiculous and unneeded. But, and that's the one we already passed, by the way, not the one that we're about to pass. More money, more money, more money. Now, yeah, this one I think I'll skip. It's about networking. There's a big feature on Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway. And I'm more of a Fitzgerald guy myself, F. Scott. But, uh, you know, it just goes to show you a sign of the times. Is The reporter, Christopher Borelli, who sounds like he suffers from lowercase whiteness he says he doesn't know what he's supposed to feel maybe sheepishness as he sits in Ernest Hemingway's home where he was born at least you could argue that Hemingway is exhibit A of the dead white male 20th century author with fading relevance in the 21st century and so it goes I suppose you know let's see if there's anything Noteworthy. The Hemingway Foundation, I used to know the guy who ran it, um, is in trouble, apparently. So, I think I'll just... If you want to read about that whole Hemingway thing, you know, go to the Trib online. Now, this QAnon thing, if you want to learn about that, uh, which I think is right up there with Scientology in terms of ludicrousness, There's a special on HBO, uh, and the guy who did it thinks that he figured out who this Q guy is, and I assumed it was some Russian, you know. uh, But he says it's a guy named, uh, that nobody ever heard of, Ron... And the last name is Watkins. 
who is a porn-loving bro with a disturbing lack of empathy who just likes to, like, do crazy stuff, right? So this is ridiculous. And people are following him. There's some number in here that is alarming in terms of how stupid people are. And I am presuming 20% of Americans believe in it, and it's basically the theory that pedophiles run the government, and, you know, it's just nutty stuff. Now, here's a review by the Biblioracle of a book called Hospital. Uh, Brian Alexander, and it's about a hospital in a small American town, he says the big picture story is a portrait of a system that has little to do with being oriented around ensuring the health of as many people as possible, as efficiently as possible, and is instead designed to enrich the few at the expense of the many. And he doesn't say whether this is a for-profit hospital or non-profit, actually, as far as I can tell. It's independent, but I don't know if that means that it's a non-profit community hospital or whatever. But he's trying, the the CEO is trying to avoid, uh, Phil Ennin, the hospital CEO, is kind of a tragic hero, trying to bring in the revenue to stay independent, uh, do the high-dollar procedures like interventional cardiology. Uh, Alexander shows, according to Warner, we don't have a problem with health care. We have a problem with society. And consultants who tell hospitals how to become profitable make millions. Private equity firms, which I'm not a big fan of, squeeze dollars out of doctors' groups, discarding them like a husk once the wealth is extracted. And, you know, this is obvious to me that this is the kind of thing that lays the groundwork work for Medicare for all, and I think that's where we're going here with hopefully some kind of private option on top of it. You know, they're talking about public option. I think the best we're going to end up with is a private option if you think that, you know, non-government reimbursed health care is worth preserving, which I do. Uh, here's a show that sounds interesting and I think I missed today. My Grandparents' War follows leading Hollywood actors as they retrace the footsteps of their grandparents and learn how World War II changed the lives of their families in the world. As I read this, I missed it. Now here's another book uh, by one of my fellow indigenous Americans, and he's more indigenous than I am. I'm only 116th, but I'm working it as hard as I can. N. Scott Mamaday, which sounds like F. Scott Fitzgerald, doesn't it? A little bit. Um, he's a poet. So I wrote a couple of little uh, miniature poems, like haikus, and on this article. It seemed a good place to record them. One of them was about my sleeping in today. Having slept through dawn, half the day was gone. That doesn't happen every day, but on weekends, I do tend to sleep late. Here's another one. By way of resignation letters, 
Got to admit, not a great fit. I quit. Well, you know, obviously I'm not going to make my living as a poet. But, you know, it just comes out of me. I'm a creative person. What can I tell you? So, it's what's interesting to me about this article is book's called Earth Keeper. And, you know... Uh, there's a lot of nonsense that comes out of the, the right, like QAnon, obviously. But there's nonsense that comes out of other sources, and it's just kind of taken as face value and kind of even, you know, glorified. Like, he says that we stand in his book as a call to action to wake up to the importance of the earth and to save it. And I have held to my theory that the earth is in no, no trouble at all. I mean, we may be in trouble, but the earth has withstood being a snowball and being a molten lava ball. The earth will be fine, for at least until the sun explodes. You know, all things must pass, but, I mean, we'll be gone long before the earth is. But he says, we stand in danger of losing so much of it that it becomes, for us, maybe the end of our civilization, which I guess I agree with. And now, a word from... The corporate dog, Louie, because Louie is unhappy for some reason. Louie, daddy is doing his podcast. You have to respect that. Let's see how that goes. All right. Uh, Now... Now that you 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 all probably know the Devil's Tower from Oh Louie. What do you want? <clears throat> Come on. You all probably know the Devil's Tower from the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's the one that uh, upsets the marriage of the character uh, played by Richard Dreyfus because he insists on building a big scale model of it in his living room out of dirt. Well, you know, the uh, the Native Americans, the indigenous, not real advanced in geology and such, made up a story about how that came to pass. And, let's see. They figured that there was a boy who turned into a bear, and the bear made the tower. Well, you know, <laughs> just because you're indigenous doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. But nobody decries the failure of science. He also says the earth is getting angry at us, as if the earth has emotions. And he's angry, of course, that people are po- poisoning the earth and inflicting wounds upon it, which kind of is reminiscent of Jim Morrison of The Doors. What have we done to the earth? What have we done to our fair sister? Dragged her down. And he enlists a Navajo saying that begins, I am ashamed before the earth. Well, you know. Okay. He's got a good line in here, I think. He witnessed the northern lights one time, and he says, Great ribbons of dancing light unraveled on the snowy sky. And a great shiver of color enveloped the dome of the earth. That's a nice line, I think. 
And he says when you write poetry, there's no room for extraneous matter, which is Hemingway-esque, right? Hemingway always wanted to write one true perfect sentence. No adjectives, no adverbs, you know. The dog died. Sorry, Lou. Not the... I mean, if, if, if Fitzgerald wrote that sentence, it would be about three paragraphs. He says that when he studied at Stanford, a teacher told him, write little and write well. And I think I should apply that to my podcast, really. Now, here's another poem he writes. To an aged bear, he urges the old creature, one more time, mortality is your shadow and your shade. Translate yourself to spirit. Be present on your journey. Keep the trees and waters. Be the singing of the soil. Very into the soil. I guess that's a indigenous thing. I have to add that to my indigenous rap. Um, let's see. That's about that. Okay, we did the Q thing. Cue the Q. <laughs> Man, that's almost to the point where it's not even funny. So now the, the section one is really chock full of stuff. Uh, there's an article about the infrastructure uh, spend. And, of course, the boodle is coming. And everybody likes infrastructure. So there's 8,000 miles of roadway in Illinois. Or no, it's Chicago that need repair. And I think we'd all agree on that. 20 million square feet of bridges that need to be fixed, a quarter of the state's total. Kirk Dillard, who's a Republican, somehow got to be head of the RTA, says this is great. <laughs> I can imagine it's going to be great for his bank account. Um, Biden's plan includes 621, and these are all billion-dollar numbers, 621 billion uh, traditional infrastructure, 650 public housing, and retrofitting 2 million homes. Upgrading schools, $45 billion. This one I really do agree with. Uh, the nation's lead water lines need to be re replaced. Because lead gets in your head and makes you crazy. So the fewer people that have been crazed by lead, the better off we are, I think. And $28 billion for the veterans' hospitals and federal buildings. Well, there you go. Probably making them green, I would imagine, which is what it is. Five hundred—it's all funny money anyway, folks. So who cares? Five hundred eighty billion for improved research and development, semiconductor manufacturing. So watch for Intel um, and incentives to locate manufacturing jobs in the industrial heartland, which might mean here if people will let them build things. Four hundred billion to expand care for seniors and people with disabilities and a lot of that's going into home care and they're going to try to unionize the home care workers so they get paid more which may or may not be a good idea i don't know minimum tax this is the not fun part they the pay for which is old-fashioned democrat uh financing logic increase the corporate rate it went from 35 to 21, now they want to bounce it back to 28, which is probably where corporations expected it to be anyway. And then they want to raise the global minimum tax paid from 13 to 21, which is not something the president 
can, or even the Congress can order, that has to be negotiated with other countries. And of course, Ireland is made out like bandits by keeping theirs as low as you can go. Ending federal tax breaks for fossil fuel companies, which, you know, I'm surprised that hasn't already been done. And I, you know, I'd be a lot more inclined to favor ending tax breaks and loopholes and deductions and leaving the rates alone than raising the rates. But that's not the way the lobbyists like to play it. It would increase tax enforcement against corporations and... You know, I guess I'd be in favor of that before raising rates, too, you know. Possible return of earmarks, which Dick Durbin is loving. Uh, and he's already putting together his priority list of, of Christmas list, his punch list. JB wants to spend $45 billion on the roads, and what JB ought to do is replace that with federal money so he can use the 45 of Illinois tax money to take care of the real problems here. But instead, it will probably be in addition to a priority is, quote, equity, unquote, a word you're going to be hearing a lot more of. Aaron Alleman of the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning the big big part of this is going to be public transportation. And the theory there is that people uh, who don't have sufficient equity or are victims of inequity, I guess, can get to where they want to go. And they cite the far south, far south side of Chicago and suburban Riverdale as a transit desert. Well, I lived there, and... All you had to do, I lived at 147th in Indiana. All I had to do was walk to the train station, which was a little bit of a hike, and I'm downtown in 30 minutes. How does that constitute a transit desert? I don't understand. Now, maybe it's, you know, it's harder to get from Riverdale to other places, but when you lived in Riverdale, the assumption in the burbs was you had a car and you were driving to the mill or a factory or whatever. That's why you moved out there. And then the, the IC, back then, the Metro, was for people who wanted to go downtown and work. You know, all of a sudden now it's a transit desert. I don't get it. But they want to run the red line out there, which, you know, they've been talking about for years. It's fine by me, I suppose. Dan Lurie, chief of policy for Lori Lightfoot. They're going to make all the L stations handicapped accessible, which I guess is okay too, but I honestly don't see many handicapped people taking the taking public trans because they got those vans for them, you know. 42 stations still need elevators. Okay, fine. I mean, I see people like me taking them. In fact, I've, I've gotten them. And I do I do take the CTA, or I did before the pandemic. Let's see. $3 billion. Oh, wait. Wait, wait, wait. This is new column. Now, they want to create higher-density transit-oriented developments that could create affordable housing near L stations in neighborhoods where such developments haven't been driven by the private sector on the green line and the pink line. 
And that's fine, I guess. But do you really want to create high-density places in a pandemic era? I don't know. Let's see what else. They want to redo North Lakeshore Drive between Grand Avenue and Hollywood. Seven miles. That's a $3 billion project. And boy, will that screw up traffic on Lakeshore Drive. There is There are some areas downtown, though, that are really badly designed and have been, like, jury-rigged for years. So that would be good, even though it's going to be terrible for traffic. What else here? Replacing all these lead water service lines, that would be $10 billion in Chicago, or statewide. Which, I, again, I think that's a good, good one-time thing. Nice thing about some of these infrastructure uh, projects, at least, is it's a one-time expense. It's not like an entitlement where it happens every year, and it actually is a negative for GDP. So... Another thing I think is not a bad idea is these protected bike lanes and pedestrian islands. Vision Zero, they're trying to get it down to zero pedestrian deaths. That was a ROM idea. 70 miles of high crash corridors. There are some really dangerous places down here in the city. And when you're driving, you're just hoping you don't hit one of these bikers. Now, I have been a biker, so I can relate to them. But I also know if I hit one, I'm the one who's in trouble. You know, regardless of how reckless they are. And there's visibility issues. So if they have these protected bike lanes, they're gonna if you're gonna encourage biking for green issues, then you know, give them a safe lane. And here's something I think that is actually good for the economy too, might have a positive ROI, a trio of rail projects separating passenger and freight lines from roadways on the southwest side. Um, it's a cre it's a program called Create that would reduce freight train congestion, reduce commuter train times, and improve rail crossing safety. And here's a new word from the acting uh, Cook County DOT Superintendent Jennifer Siskillen. Sounds kind of Irish. She's laserly focused on completing that. 75th Street Corridor Project. Um, laserly? I didn't know that was like leisurely. I thought it was like laser-focused. Well, the language evolves. And, and then they want to separate the grades between the Beltway, the Belt Railway of Chicago at Archer Avenue and near the intersection of 63rd and Harlem. And man, there are some terrible train delays in that area. Not as bad as Riverdale, which is a great neighborhood to live in if you drive a locomotive. Uh, Rodney Davis, a Republican of uh, Taylorville, Illinois, way down, way down south, he even he will advocate for create because it would have some benefit for the downstate folks because they're served by the same rail lines that, that come from Chicago, obviously. You may recall that Lincoln was a lawyer for the Illinois Central Railroad. Of course, he's getting canceled. So, the hell with him. 
Now I got another page. Ah, here's the rest of the infrastructure article. Let's see how we're doing on time. All right, so Davis says he favors a return to earmarks, too. They all like those earmarks, because that lets them put stuff in the district and gets them elected. It is one way to break partisanship, because you can buy them, you know. Earmarks were used to buy votes, and they gave the speaker a lot of power and the majority leader. And when they took, that was supposedly a corruption, which I think it was. You get like Bridget and Owers stuff in Milwaukee. But you could get people across the aisle or keep them on side with Bribo. So we're back to the good old days, it looks like there. Uh, but Davis does say that the infrastructure bill is going to look more like the Green New Deal than the transportation bill, which is should be no surprise to anybody. He goes on to say the percentage of true infrastructure will be abysmal, which is also true. Preckwinkle says, quoting Ram, never let a serious crisis go to waste. <laughs> yes, indeed. And she says, the hell with the Republicans. Actually, she says, if they don't support it, bless them, uh, which is a polite way of saying now, in the tri-state, they want to add new interchanges between Robbins and Crestwood, as well as at Chicago Ridge. And those of you who travel that span know that you have an exit at 127th. The next one, I think, is 167th. Now, why anybody would want to get off at Robbins, I'm not sure. But anyway, I'm sure some people do. They want to revamp Metro train cars and stations, particularly Rock Island and Metro. Okay, Metro Electric which is the old IC. Pace, upgrades, roadway improvements, traffic signal projects. That's the county's wish list. Preckwinkle slashed fares on Metro and Rock Island by 50% and boosted the hours and frequency of the Pace 352 Halstead bus route. So, you know, getting people to get on the, uh, the trains, I think the trains are pretty actually pretty safe um and improving the the pace hauls the bus route you know those things do take forever to get there i've taken them on occasion so that may help but buses you know safety is a big issue and as is the rapid transit quote unquote the l whatever you want to call it metro wants to rehab stations replace old cars expand rail yards so you'd have more express and all-day service. Now, the presumption here is that you're going to have a big commuter population, and I think that's very questionable. So if we end up doing this and nobody uses it, it's like these Chinese projects where they build cities that nobody lives in, you know? I think the stuff you're going to do with the freight is a lot better than the public trans. A lot of bridges... What else do we have worth mentioning here? Want to fix the locks for the and the rivers, the canals. Want to fix the stormwater infrastructure. Now, we do get some flooding here, but, you know, they poured so much money literally into this deep tunnel thing, and it doesn't even seem to have helped. The EJ&E Railroad, they're talking about a project up 
old McHenry Road. I didn't even know the EJ&E still running. It used to take stuff from the steel plants up north, and the steel plants aren't running anymore, but I guess they are still there. So that's infrastructure for the day. What else do we have here? Worth mentioning in our remaining time. Uh, it talks about Lightfoot. Lori Lionfoot. And that's not spelled I-O-N. Many of the promises she made in the campaign have not been kept. But her spokesman says that the mayor works diligently to cultivate an economy that works for all residents, a city that feels and is safe, <laughs> in a government that centers race and gender in all of its work, as those systems have defined Chicago for generations. Now, she was supposed to fight homelessness with the real estate transfer tax. Instead, she used it to plug a hole in the budget. She was supposed to uh, end the city's regressive fines and fees. And instead, she put more red light cameras in with a lower threshold, six miles over the limit for your ticket instead of 10. She was supposed to bring back the Department of the Environment but only included one person, so the alderman referred to it as the cubicle of the environment. Um, she pushed through the $15 minimum wage in the Fair Work Week ordinance, which probably doesn't even make that much of a difference in Chicago because it's hard to hire people for less than 20 bucks an hour down here, even if you pay cash, I might add. Um, and then there's an Irish guy, <laughs> that they interviewed. Oh, no, that wait, that's a professor. She says, what he says is that you can't try to do 100 things, then you're not going to get anything done. you got to focus on two or three things. The aldermen don't want to give up their power for zoning. The plan is years away. And Tom Tunney, who's a veteran, obviously, who's her hand-picked zoning committee chair, says depending on what proposal she has in mind, she still needs 26 votes, which reminds me of council wars. And what 26 aldermen are going to cede their primary, one of their primary responsibilities to control development? Campaigning and governing are two different things. He says is. I would say are. But that's the old, you, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose, you know. So, yeah, that's, none of that stuff's going to happen. She campaigned on a civilian oversight plan for the police. She now rejects that. She, to her credit, the one thing I do give her credit for, she has publicly rejected calls to defund the police. Uh, and then there's an alderman, Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, Rosanna, Rod Rosanna Dana, 33rd. She <clears throat> is a socialist, and there's a few of them. Yeah, Daly must be turning over in his grave. 
And she says, we are spending a ridiculous amount of money on plays. Instead, we should fund initiatives that are going to make people whole and satisfy the needs of the people, be it material things like housing or mental health. And we probably do need some mental health or family services that can help communities do better. So I guess her theory is that if people have more stuff, then they won't go commit crimes. I don't know about that. We'll find out, I I suppose. Chicago is the only school board in Illinois without its own elections, and the mayor's fighting that, you know. I don't know if the schools could get any worse, but I suppose anything's possible in this city. Then there's an article about doomed churches. There's a quote in here. It says, Mike Shanahan, pastor of Our Lady of Lourdes, the archdiocese was set up for a population that was here in 1950 and 1924. So they closed St. Bride's, and I don't know if they're going to tear it down. I suggested to Father Bob Wall, who was the last emperor over there, that they convert it into, you know, some kind of homeless shelter or you know, service center for the for people who are in need, but it might go onto the wrecking ball, which is too bad. But you know, the church is the people, not the steeple, and the people have been gone for a long time. Who were the parish back when I knew it? We're the last generation of people who went there. Really, once we're gone, the memory of it'll even be erased. So, absent a miracle, those buildings are toast. Now, sometimes I do agree with Steve Chapman. It's not very often. But he writes a column titled, Conservatives' Rejection of Vaccine Passports Defies Conservatism. Uh, And he focuses his argument on property rights and quotes Madison and even Milton Friedman uh, about the importance of property rights. And thus he argues that private businesses and other private sector institutions ought to be able to mandate a vaccine passport for entry into their facilities. And he cites a number of other instances. The problem with that, of course, is that, you know, You have limited, ever since the civil rights era, you have limited the ability of private business owners to decide who they will or will not do business with, at least on certain grounds, Uh, the main one being race, and there's also arguments about sexual orientation and such, so that's kind of contradictory um, logic. But I whatever the constitutional, you know, the Constitution isn't a suicide pact, and I strongly support those vaccine passports. Eric Zorn writes a column about the Republican Party. So 15% of Republican voters are never Trumpers. And I'm, I'm probably as close to that as any of these other categories, especially after January 6th, but I was never a Trump fan. 
Let's put it that way. But uh, this is a poll by Fabrizio Lee and Associates, Republican polling firm, sort of the GOP into five tribes. Diehard Trumpers, 27%. Infowars tribe, 10%, which Zorn calls the crackpot caucus, the QAnon people. Trump boosters, 28%, who uh, give, gave him very strong job approval ratings and a preference for him in a theoretical primary. Post-Trump GOP, strong positive opinion of Trump, uh, but think that he should step back. However, only 5% of them would vote for Mitt Romney. 88% of respondents favorable opinion of Trump presidency. 57% said they'd vote for him again, which is interesting. And then uh, Zorn makes kind of a good point here, but clearly he doesn't get it. Um, Mike Tyson is on TV now, and he is a convicted rapist, alleged domestic batterer, um, who has admitted to having socked one of his wives, Robin Givens. And, but now he's okay. He's back. But, uh, you know, race plays into that, let's face it. Felons ought to have a second chance, right? At least certain felons. Now, here's an article called Data Points, which is kind of Captain Obvious, but it's about gun violence. And obviously, the perception and the reality of this being a crime-ridden, dangerous place is going to hurt the recovery in terms of convention and tourism, right? There's been a 55% increase in homicides in the city, 110% increase in gun carrying based on police statistics on traffic stops. And the stops have plummeted, you know, by like 70%. 80% of the, well, 100% of the shootings, but 80% of uh, four out of five murders, let's put it that way, 80% are committed with guns, 20% with something else vast majority public places stem from altercations the guns don't cause violence which is the point nra makes but they do make violence more deadly than if you use fists knives or bats and there's more collateral damage right um it's really he says our she says this is or no jen's ludwig probably a male probably identifies as a he, him, her, or he, him. <laughs> Our gun violence problem is in part an illegal gun carrying problem. I would say it's almost in total an illegal gun carrying problem, which is why it's unlikely the gun laws are going to help it. Um, he blames the economic crisis. Young people have been hit hardest. Unemployment rate under Trump was down to 5%, and then it popped up to 25% during the pandemic. Um, so he figures that that may be why more people are carrying guns. I don't know if I buy that. Um, and, you know, they're, they're basing this gun carry on the percentage of people who get stopped. Well, the cops are probably focusing on stopping people who probably have guns, let's face it. Because uh, they can pull anybody over they want, right? Everybody speeds in this town. Mental health crisis, 
three out of every four 18 to 24-year-olds reported they're experiencing symptoms of anxiety, depression, or trauma, and that's nationwide. Increased use of drugs and alcohol to deal with it. And uh, 25% considered suicide. Well, you know, pandemic's no reason to kill yourself. Pandemic may kill you, so why bother? Gun sales have surged in Illinois. Uh, the legal, but that's not the problem. The legal sales aren't the problem in my mind. But according to this, legal and the illegal gun sales tend to track one another, and that's because people go buy it legally and then resell it to gangbangers. Everybody knows this. Jens hasn't been around for long. Um, so what to do? There's three challenges. Distrust of law enforcement and criminal justice system. And that's now on both sides, I think. Supply of illegal guns outside city control, and then resources. So there's a bunch of nonprofit social policy response. Basically, he's saying we need more money, and that plays right into the stimulus and all this other stuff, infrastructure. So the the big problem, though, there's a breakdown by age that's kind of obviously revealing, and this is kind of Captain Obvious. The big uh, problem is teenagers and young adults, 18 to 40. The, the numbers peak between 23 and 30, 40. 40% of people who get stopped, um, or no, 40% of people who are arrested for illegal possession are between 23 and 30. 30% are between 18 and 22. So that's like 70% of it right there, you know. Uh, and then, so 30, 68 88, 88% are between 18 and 40. Once they get over 41 or even under 17, it's de minimis. So they either get killed or they, you know, they're too young to play or then they, they age and they, they get smart and the hormones die down. So that's where, it at. That's where it's at. Let's see, I'm probably running out of time here, folks. Or folk, person, listener. Six minutes left. An interesting thing about Navy Pier, and this, you know, when people talk about tax avoidance, I mean, one of the reasons that I am a pretty ardent supporter of it is because you know the money's going to get stolen, a lot of it. So there's an outfit called McPeer, and my cousin actually was working for McPeer when Daly was in it, at least. They created a, a weird thing, and they talk about it being a cash cow with 9 million visitors. Well, not anymore. But it used to be... Let's see, before 2011, McPeer had to report and have its records open. But then in 2011... They leased the pier for a dollar a year to a nonprofit corporation, not for profit corporation, Navy Pier Inc. And that not being a public body, they could shield the finances from public view. Same thing as World Business Chicago. No public meetings. Now, you know, it's like, depends who benefits, whether this is good or bad, because then they say, oh, well, 
Lori Lightfoot did a similar thing for Invest Southwest, and that's okay, because that's for the south and west side, and we know what that means. Um, Bill Cunningham of Chicago has introduced a bill that would change the FOI, Freedom of Information, to include the peer, basically. Um, well, I think you ought to have that visibility and transparency. It may give you a chance to figure out where the money goes. Uh, there's a little piece here about the new Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer entered Congress 40 years ago as a law and order Democrat and helped to write the 1994 crime bill along with Joe Biden voted against gay marriage in 96 for the Iraq war in 2003 and listen to this for a border wall in 2006 so Chuck blows with the wind either that or he's become woke and the opposite of woke is a sheeple by the way so for those of you who aren't woke okay we got a three minute deadline here uh, Clarence Page writes an article and, you know, it's kind of like the opposite of, say, somebody like me with that Asian woman who got beat up in New York. He's, before they show the, the film, he says, please don't let the perp be black. And of course he was, which was very downplayed because it doesn't fit the narrative. And to his credit, you know, Clarence addresses it, um, and there was another one the same week in New York. It's black and Asian. And uh, he con- commends Preckwinkle and Kim Fox for rallying in Chinatown. And, yeah, my wife's Korean, so I'm not for this, obviously. Not that I would be anyway. Uh, awareness of anti-Asian, and then that has some anti-black. And uh, there was a thing about that in 92 in the L.A. riots. Um, now, here's some statistics. A black New Yorker is over six times as likely to commit a hate crime against an Asian as a white New Yorker. Blacks made up 50% of all suspects in anti-Asian attacks in New York, even though they're 24% of the population. Whites, 10% of all suspects in anti-Asian crime, uh, but account for 32%. And he says that's fair enough. You know, but what he what he doesn't like is that it's turning into a you know, he kinda twists the thing into black versus Asian thing to them white versus black thing. But I don't see any real good argument about that. I mean that it is what it is. So you know, everybody wants to cast the whole world's problems as a white and color thing, and obviously this is color on color. And that happens, right? White people have been killing each other for millions of years, too, probably. Certainly throughout recorded history. So, we may be at the end of the podcast here. Yeah, we don't have time for anything else. So, I'll try to get to some of this other stuff later on. And uh, until that time... Live long, prosper, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.